Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. Hear now the word of our God. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops... The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to this and to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in the pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. 
Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. This is the word of the Lord. The story of Gideon is a beautiful example of of how God meets us in our weakness and fears. God humbles himself. He he, he does not rebuke us for our frailty. He rebukes us for our sins. Yes. But he knows that we are dust. And he sent his own son to join himself to our dust. In a way, we've, we've heard in the Deborah narrative, in the song of Deborah, the, the, the high note as Deborah prays, praises God and, and prays that all of God's friends would be like the sun rising in might. And there's a sense in which Gideon is something of a step down from that peak. The Gideon cycle is, is the longest in the book of Judges, 157 verses, if you include the 57 about his son Abimelech. Unlike Otniel, the first judge, where we were just given the bare minimum of information, with Gideon, we're given expansive detail at every turn. And there's a way in which the Gideon story has all of these highs and lows, and in that respect, it fits very well with our own experience, that we ourselves experience both the triumphs and the frailty of a Gideon. Verses 1 to 6 set out the problem. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. And as we just did this, in this part that we've heard from chapter 6, what does it mean they did evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, Gideon's own father, Joash, has a, an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. So this is where, yeah, the Israelites are acting like Canaanites. So if you want to know what does it mean to do evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, don't follow the Lord and follow the culture around you, follow the peoples around you, follow their gods. That's what it means to do evil in the sight of the Lord. The Midianites had had given refuge to Moses when he had fled from Egypt. Uh, and we've heard of how the, the Kenites, the, 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 one of the clans of the Midianites, had joined with Israel. But the rest of the Midianites, not so much. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern tribes now are raiding Israel at will. 
they come raiding and plundering, leaving nothing behind. And the picture here is that of, of, of a locust plague that devours everything. I, with my junior high students, I, I sometimes give them, uh, when, they're, when we're studying this, this region, a locust plague, I don't know if you've ever seen before and after pictures of locust plagues. Uh, we haven't had a lot of really terrible locust plagues for the last hundred years because uh, scientific monitoring, you can actually spot them coming and you can try to sort of keep them from getting really bad. But some of the really bad ones in the early 20th century, there are, we, we have photographs of before and after where you have this lush garden and then after the locust plague has come through, there's nothing left. It's just sticks and stones. So the that's the picture of the locust plague of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the peoples of the East, like, like locusts in number, leaving nothing behind. And so Israel became small, was brought very low, and their response is to cry out to Yahweh for help. Now, notice that they don't repent. It doesn't say they repent. It doesn't say they turn away from their sin. In fact, as we see in chapter 6, they don't turn away from their sin. They're still, they get really upset when somebody comes after their Baal worship. They're not repenting. They're just crying out for help. They cry out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, on account of their misery, on account of their afflictions. This is something that the book of Judges will point out more and more as we go through. God didn't save us because we repented. God saved us when we were just crying out in our misery and affliction, when we were dead in our sins. God did not wait for Israel to change before he would send a redeemer, a deliverer. He sent the deliverer in spite of Israel's refusal to change. Now, it's if we think back to our literary pattern in chapter 2, we should hear at this point, okay, Israel cries out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. But that part drops out. I've suggested to you that the, the literary pattern of chapter 2 is gradually disintegrating, even as Israel is disintegrating. And so, yes, we're told how God raised up a deliverer, but the actual wording, and God raised up a deliverer, is missing. Instead, we're told that the Lord sent a prophet. Now, the, the description of this prophet parallels the description of Deborah in chapter, in, in chapter 4. She was called a Isha Navi, a, a, a woman prophet. He is called a man prophet. Uh, oftentimes, usually when you talk about prophets, you just say a prophet. But here it actually says an Ish prophet, a man prophet, whereas it had said a woman prophet for Deborah. Uh, I like how Dale Ralph Davis talks about this. He says, sending a prophet in this case is like a stranded motorist calling a garage for assistance and the garage sends a a philosopher instead of a mechanic. We need a little help over here, but rather than send a deliverer, God sends a prophet to remind Israel of his grace in the past, but also to convict Israel of their sins. We are... Too much like Israel. We want to escape our circumstances. God wants us to understand our circumstances. Sometimes we may need to understand why we're in the situation we are more than we need relief. Although God graciously provides relief, but part of the point is he sends the prophet 
Because understanding God's way of holiness is more important than absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, but God wants us to see our idolatry. And further, though, we should not miss the kindness of God in all of this, because God's purpose is to deliver us from our sin and misery. But if all we want is to be delivered from our misery, then we will still remain in our sin. And therefore, we will remain in our misery, because sin and misery always go together. But this is designed to show that God's deliverance is entirely of grace. Israel does not deserve deliverance. They haven't even repented and acknowledged their sin. The wages of sin is death. And we have sinned against God. And the prophet's sermon ends rather abruptly. There in verse 10. You have not obeyed my voice. You would expect some warning of judgment or a call to repentance or just... What next? The prophet offers no way out. But now we see the angel of the Lord coming and sitting under the terebinth at Ophrah. God has mercy. He sends the angel of the Lord, as we've seen, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who comes and sits under the terebinth at Ophrah. Now, as we'll see in the call to Gideon, there's there's a lot of parallels between Gideon's call and Moses. If you think back to Moses, there was also Israel's cry for help in Exodus 2.24. And the call comes while the person is hiding from the enemy but working for his father or father-in-law in the case of Moses. The commissioning word in both cases is, I have sent you. The one who is called protests his inadequacy. But there is an assurance of divine presence. There's a sign of that reassurance and fear-inducing fire. So there's a lot of similarities between Gideon and, Mo- and the call of Moses. Why does Judges highlight all these? After all, he could have just said, and God called Gideon. But by telling the whole story, it highlights these parallels. There's a way in which Gideon is portrayed as a, a second Moses. He is called to deliver Israel. And God often uses the weak and the frail. And here we see the angel sitting under a terebinth, and he's apparently watching Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Well, Gideon is beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay. I know. Just out of curiosity, anybody here ever beaten out wheat? I didn't think so. Okay. So, do you have any idea what a wine press looks like? So, when you're beating out wheat, you need some wind to help the chaff blow. Uh, Wine presses are designed to not have wind. Basically, he's in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. This is going to be, it's going to be incredibly hard work, and the wheat is not going to be, you're not not going to beat it out very quickly. Uh, so, there's, there's a certain sarcasm in the angel's address. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, as you're hiding in a wine press trying to beat out wheat. It's, it, it, the picture here is actually comical. But there's also a certain foreshadowing, because 
this is not just talking about Gideon's past or present. It's talking about his future. And Gideon responds, and the angel had addressed him as you singular, but Gideon responds with an us plural. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon had been catechized. He knew what God had done. But all of this has not produced a very robust faith. He's polite, but cynical. If the Lord is with us, why is everything going wrong? I know the story of Egypt, but now God has handed us over to our enemies. Do you ever feel that way? If God loves us, why do we have such misery and affliction? And notice the Lord's answer. The Lord's answer is, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? This fearful and cynical farmer is hereby informed that God has indeed heard his people's cry for help. And Gideon, you are the answer to your own question. Think about that. When you're tempted to ask the question, why are we enduring all this misery? Because, yes, Gideon is rightly pointing us to Jesus. But you can't get away from this by saying, oh, well, it's just talking about Jesus, it's not talking about me. Because you've been united to Jesus. And so when you're in that situation, when you're like, why, are we, why is all this misery happening? There's a very real way in which God's answer comes back and says, I have sent you. When you think about the misery and the affliction that surrounds you, God has called you to be his instrument of bringing relief to those around you. He has united you to his son. He has given you his spirit. As we'll see, Gideon is clothed with the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish this. And this is where, this is part of what God is saying to us. If you're wondering, why do we have such misery and affliction? God's answer to you is, do I not send you? Sure, if you choose to live in rebellion against God, then, yeah, you will perpetuate sin and misery. That's But if you live according to the kingdom of Christ, then you are part of the solution, part of God's solution in bringing life to the dead. Now, Gideon hears this and says, oh, but I don't have the social standing to be, I'm a nobody. Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. I'm a nobody. Notice the Lord's answer. I will be with you. This is the promise that equips us. The presence of God is what we need. If he is with us, then his kingdom will come. So let's connect what the prophet said with what the angel of the Lord says. So, okay, why has everything gone wrong? Well, Israel has rebelled, and so the Lord is not with them. God will not be with you if you insist on living contrary to him. But the angel of the Lord now says to Gideon, I will be with you. When the Lord himself is with us, Emmanuel, God with us, then even the weakest and the last 
can strike down the Midianites as one man. As with Moses, the fearful Gideon will be transformed into the deliverer of his people by nothing less than the powerful presence of God himself. And we see this at the end of the chapter when he is clothed with the Spirit in in verse 34. But it takes a little while to get there. Because Gideon, like, like Moses before him, wants a sign. It's all very good for somebody to show up claiming to be the messenger of Yahweh. But if Gideon is going to go out and fight the Midianites, he wants a little more. At this point, all he's got is somebody claiming to be God's messenger, telling him to do this. So it's understandable that he's like, okay, is this really you? And the angel of the Lord thinks this is a perfectly valid question. I will stay until you return. So he goes and slaughters a young goat, prepares it with a large amount of bread, and brings it back. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God! For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, when the deity consumes the meal that you have provided, this this should be seen as a favorable sign. But Gideon also recognizes, I have seen the angel of the Lord. And uh, what we don't know quite yet, but what we find out just a few verses later, is that Gideon's father has an altar to Baal, uh, there's an Asherah pole, What do you suppose Gideon has been doing every time his father offers sacrifices to Baal? Gideon's is part, he's part of his father's household. He's, Gideon is himself an idolater. He's been involved in the very idolatry that God is condemning Israel for. So you could understand why Gideon's sort of like, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. I've seen the angel of the Lord. I think, Sometimes, sometimes we, th- we read these stories and we're like, ah, wouldn't it have been amazing? It would have been terrifying. There's, there's nothing amazing about grace unless there is something truly terrifying about holiness. Gideon sees the angel of the Lord and realizes, I am undone. This is God himself who has just appeared to me, and I've been worshiping another God. I'm not, I mean, he's, he's by no means convinced that this story is going to end well. He, he thinks he's going to die. But the Lord says to him, Shalom, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And so Gideon builds an altar there to the Lord and calls it, The Lord is Shalom. And we're told that it's standing there to this day, to the day of the writing of this book. Now, notice Gideon is just offered a sacrifice, and now he's building an altar. Wasn't it forbidden for Israelites to offer sacrifices except through the priests? So what's going on here? Well, notice up until this point, you know, Gideon certainly prepared a goat and unleavened bread, and he calls it a present, which was often used for sacrifices. But... 
honestly, this is, he's only, up until this point, he's only done things that are, this is, he's offering hospitality to a stranger. It actually reminds us of Abraham, who, who prepared uh, meat and, and bread for his, his guests in Genesis. If this man is nothing but a stranger, then he'll simply eat the food and Gideon will go back to the wine press and forget this whole strange episode. But the event turns into a sacrifice when the angel of the Lord takes the role of the priest, sets the meat and bread on fire, transforming the simple rock upon which it sat into an altar. The altar of Gideon here is a lot like Ed, the altar we saw in the book of Joshua, built at the Jordan River to remind the western tribes that their eastern brethren were still brethren. So up until this point, Gideon hasn't done anything sacrificial. But now God says, offer a burnt offering. Gideon's not a Levite. But... So watch what's happening in verses 25 and following. Because before Gideon can be God's anointed deliverer, he must first clean his own house. He says, the Lord says to him, take, take your father's bowl. His father Joash had established a shrine to Baal, complete with an Asherah pole. Just as Moses' sons had to be circumcised before he could deliver Israel, so also Gideon must have a family that at least outwardly conforms to Yahweh. Because the real problem in Israel isn't the Midianites. The real problem is idolatry. The real problem for us is idolatry. Is, I mean, this is where the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your biggest problem is that you don't love God. That's, this is the biggest problem we have. And that's where when we... When, when, when God is with you, when you know, your real problem is not your circumstances, your real problem is your heart. And when God is with you, when the Lord himself is present with you, then you go in the strength of the Lord and you clean house. And so God tells Gideon to do two things. Attack the kingdom of Satan by breaking down the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. And then secondly, seeking first the kingdom of God by building an altar to the Lord and sacrificing a bull and to add insult to injury, use the wood of the Asherah to burn the sacrifice. Now, it, I, I think there's actually only one bull in the story. The word translated second can also mean exalted. So take the exalted bull. In other words, the bull that your father has designated for sacrifice to Baal. So this is it probably that's that's probably what the the second bowl, the exalted bowl, the the, the bowl that's designed for for sacrifice to Baal, and use it instead to offer to the Lord. Now the the Asherah pole was a carved wooden, wooden image with exaggerated sexual features, and her rites usually involved prostitution. So basically, God is is telling Gideon to go tear down the Asherah pole, use it for the the. Uh, for the wood for the fire, tear down the altar to Baal, basically consecrate Baal's altar, turn it into a Yahweh's altar, as it were. Well, now, of course, now we really do have a problem about sacrifice. <laughs> Here, God commands him to offer a burnt offering. Deuteronomy 12 is clear. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there shall you do all that I am commanding you. 
So why does God command Gideon to offer a burnt offering on the altar on the top of the now ruined shrine of Baal? Gideon is charged with reclaiming this site for Yahweh. The burnt offering will serve to cleanse the site. This is a place that has been dedicated to Baal, and for its cleansing requires an offering to the Lord. It serves notice that Yahweh will not allow Baal and Asherah to stand. In fact, if you keep reading in Deuteronomy 12 into chapter 13, in Deuteronomy 13, 16, Israel is commanded to destroy an idolatrous town. And if an Israelite town turns to idolatry, all Israel is to gather and kill all the inhabitants and burn the town as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now, effectively, what Gideon is told to do is to do that sort of symbolically by destroying the altar of Baal and basically testing the people of of the town. Will they follow the Lord or will they follow Baal? Gideon is serving notice. The destruction of the shrine of Baal, the burnt offering offered in its ruins, it signifies what Ophrah, the town, deserves. Now, notice that Gideon does this before the night is over. Uh, people, some, some people think that you know, doing, this, doing this quickly is a sign of his faithfulness. Others argue doing it by night is a sign of his fearfulness. They're both right. Now, the text suggests that obedience is the point. Heroism, that's optional. In one sense, doing it by day might have been more heroic, but doing it by night gets it done. And that's fine. It's okay for Gideon to be afraid, so long as he does what God says. At the same time, this rare comment as to internal motivation makes clear that Gideon is no Otniel or Deborah. It also points to how Israel is becoming like the Canaanites. Gideon knows that his townspeople will be quicker to defend Baal than to return to the Lord. And he's right. Because when the men of the town rise up in the morning, they see the altar of Baal broken down, the Asherah beside it cut down, the bull offered on the altar, and their first thought is, who has done this? And they investigate, they discover that Gideon is the culprit. Now, if the town of Ophrah had been faithful to God, they would have executed the idolaters. (laughs) That was themselves. So, yeah, now they wish to execute the one who destroyed their idol. By their own tongues they indict themselves according to the word of the prophet that we just heard in verse 10. And they come to Joash and demand that he surrender his son. Now, as the head of his household, Joash is responsible for those under his authority. Now, it's curious that this shrine had been his, but he's the only one who appears unconcerned about his son's actions. Now, what's not clear here is, is Joash, is he convicted of his sin and is he repenting now or is he simply defending his child it's not clear but we can hope for the best and at least recognize that Joash has good theology here if Baal is a god he can take care of himself but we also discover that Joash is a rather powerful man in that region he declares that anyone who tries to contend for Baal will, will be executed Suggesting that Joash is competent to defend his son. So when he says that his family is the least in Manasseh, we should read that as the least of the leading families in Manasseh. Because he's 
still a pretty powerful guy, even if he's the least. So Ophrah is perhaps one of the smaller towns. And Joash may be prominent in his own town, but he doesn't carry much weight in the tribe as a whole. So on that day, Gideon was named Jerubbaal, which literally means Baal will contend. Uh, normally, when you put the, the name of a deity in a name, uh, that's a, designed to praise the deity. But here we're told very clearly that this is designed as a challenge to Baal. But the ambiguity of the name will continue to be evident throughout the narrative because in the end of the story of Gideon and his son, Baal's contending will overthrow the house of Gideon. Now, in light of Gideon's own personal doubts, in light of the town's attempts to execute him, it may seem somewhat strange that in verse 33... When all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east come together and they encamp at the Valley of Jezreel, all of a sudden, everybody's following Gideon. The Abizarites come to the sound of his trumpet, along with the rest of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali. I mean, maybe you could argue that Joash was convincing that, well, Baal didn't do anything, so therefore they should follow Yahweh. Why do they follow him? Verse 34. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. This is why they follow him. There's this sudden transformation from the guy they're all trying to kill to now he's the guy we're going to follow. And it's, it's, it's sort of this breathtaking whiplash in one sense. But... This is what God does when he raises up by his spirit the man of his choosing. The salvation of Israel will not come about through the righteousness of the nation. The deliverance of God's people will not be accomplished by the strength of a man. It will come when the spirit of the Lord clothes the man of his choosing. And when the spirit of the Lord does his work, the people of God respond. And suddenly these idolaters and rebels are stirred up to faithful obedience not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Gideon, in spite of his faults, is now revealed as a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit-clothed warrior who goes before his people to defeat his enemies, to deliver his people from their foes. Gideon has become the mighty man of valor that the angel of the Lord declared him to be. God's word and spirit transform Gideon into a mighty warrior, and so God's people follow him. And the Lord Jesus has said to us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is the mighty, spirit-anointed man of valor. He is the spirit-clothed warrior who has gone before us and defeated his and our enemies. And he has called us to follow him. You see, where are we in this story? In the end, we're not Gideon. Our Lord Jesus is the Gideon who goes before us. We are the idolatrous Abizrites, the men of, the, the, of Manasseh and Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, because they followed him. And Jesus says to you, come follow me. Jesus says to you, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says to you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
And all those things you're worried about will get taken care of. Because his kingdom comes only if we follow him. When we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, help us, because we too often are like the Abizrites, worshiping other gods, worshiping the gods of the peoples around us. Too often we don't listen to your anointed warrior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to come follow him. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and help us. And turn us from our selfish ways, turn us from our own devices, and help us to heed your voice. May your spirit work in us as you have raised up your son and seated him at your right hand in glory. So may that same spirit be at work in us to, to strengthen us and help us that we might be your people. Lord, give us eyes to see what Jesus is, is doing in our, in our day, in our, in our world, in our communities. Help us to see the places where we can show forth your mighty power that we might hold fast the word of truth to, before the watching world, that they might see in us and hear from us the glorious gospel of our Savior. Help us to, to go forth boldly with confidence because Jesus sits at your right hand, because the, the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, because you have said that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. So help us, we pray, and give us wisdom as we seek to do these things in our, in our community, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our, in our neighborhoods, in, in each place where you put us, Lord. Help us to, to live as those who belong to Jesus, to, to speak as those who have, been, who have been filled with your Spirit and are no longer our own, but have been brought with a price. May we glorify you in our bodies. Have mercy, Lord, on those who are afflicted and, and, and distressed and be gracious and sustain them and lift them up. Have mercy, Lord, on those who are dealing with, with, with struggles of, of the heart and, and of, the, of the mind. And of, we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on the, those with anxiety and depression and fear, that you, would, that you would help them to see your calling in their life to, to be your instrument of peace to those around them. Help us, Lord, to know your ways, to speak your truth, to live as those who belong to Jesus. And be, I pray, Father, that you would be with each, each of the families, each of the members of, of this congregation in the next three weeks while, while I'm gone. Lord, have mercy and sustain and strengthen them. Bless them in your service and, and equip them in, in your ways that they, might, that they might walk boldly and faithfully for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.